Open to Psalm 107. Believe it or not, we're in the last division, the last section of the Psalms. So we've been, uh, I think it's been, been about three years we've been in the Psalms. And uh, these last, from uh, Psalm 107 to Psalm 150 is the last division, the last group. It's divided into five groupings. Uh, some people have suggested that each of the divisions correspond to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Uh, so this one would correspond to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which basically is a retelling of uh, the relationship that God wants to have with his people. And, you know, I, I love retellings because it, it sort of gives us the idea that we need to hear these things again and again because we tend to forget or we tend to go off uh, track and so it, it's good to be reminded of these things. The relationship that man is to have with his creator, uh, a relationship of obedience, a relationship of love, you know, and a relationship where we now are called to live our lives in a different way, in a new way, it says in the New Testament that for any, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, that the old things have passed away and all things have become new. So. In this new relationship with God, we are to live our lives in a new and different way. And in the way we live our life, and that is to bring Him glory and bring Him honor. And so, again, the Psalms many times speak of glorifying God, thanking God, praising God. And so we're going to see that over and over in this last section of the Psalms. Obviously, we're only going to do three psalms tonight. We're not going to do uh, all of them. But um, this, psalm, this psalm, Psalm 107, is a song of thanksgiving and a celebration. And it's a celebration for the deliverance that we as believers receive from the Lord. Probably referring to that ultimate deliverance that we have when we accept Jesus as our Savior. Because the salvation we have in Jesus Christ delivers us from eternal separation from God. And so it certainly can refer to that type of deliverance, but it can also refer to really any type of deliverance in our lives, whether that's deliverance from sin, deliverance from destructive behaviors in our life, Deliverance from those who would seek us harm. Deliverance from people who desire to persecute us just because we are Christians. So all of these things, anything that we're going through in our life, God is desiring to deliver us from those things. So in a way, we can really relate to this psalm. And I love this particular one because it kind of goes in cycles. And we'll, we'll, we will see a repetition of certain things as we take the psalm into, into chunks. And we'll see in each passage, in each portion, we'll see a retelling of a trial, a crying out to the Lord, and then a deliverance from their troubles. So 
just as our life kind of mirrors these cycles, you know, the ups and downs, the trials, the crying out to God, the deliverance, the praising, the thanksgiving, everything that goes on in our lives is kind of uh, all in this one psalm. So jumping in in verses 1 through 3, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the, so and from the south. So we see here, first off, rejoicing in God's goodness. And we sang tonight, for He is good, for He is good, He is good to me. You know, just to remember his goodness in our life and His mercy. How thankful we should be because of the salvation that we have in the Lord. But remember, this psalm can only be recited by those who have been redeemed. It says in verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So it's a special place, a special position that we as believers have with the Lord. That we can sing these songs of thanksgiving and of mercy and, and grace and goodness. Now, salvation, as we know, is available to everyone. And it says in the Scriptures that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But many don't receive that free gift. And, you know, we have an enemy that wants to defeat us in that. And so he's always coming against people to dissuade them from making that decision for Jesus Christ. But Jesus has already secured the victory for those who will accept him. His offer of salvation is for the entire world. It says in verse 3, he's gathered all of those redeemed from all of the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north and the south. So it's universal in its offer but unfortunately not universal in its re re receptance. So, as it says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Again, that universal offer of salvation that we should be giving thanks for. And then, Notice how each of the following sections of this psalm ends with a plea by the psalmist to all believers to thank the Lord for His goodness. And again, like I said before, we need to be reminded often to thank the Lord for His goodness because, you know, when, when kind of life happens and, and we, we have troubles and trials and, and difficulties, we tend to forget the goodness of God. And so we'll see that repetition as we go through. In verses 4 through 9, They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses. And He led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. For He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. So we see here the psalmist 
specifically referring to the plight of the Israel, Israelites during, during and after the Babylonian captivity, thinking of that word wilderness, you know, where they were taken captive, strangers in a strange land, taken from their homes, brought to an unfamiliar place. That was a strategy of the nation's that surrounded Israel at that time. They would capture the people, they would take them out of their, their familiar surroundings, and then the people would feel disoriented and, and desolate and lonely. And they would be pretty much, they would, they would submit to their captors because of that. But God restored them, and He delivered them out of their difficulties. And He does the same for us. You know, it says there, for he satisfies the longing soul in verse 9 and fills the hungry soul with goodness. It says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. You see how one goes with the other, that he will give us the longings of our heart if we delight in him, that he will give us those things that our soul is hungry for as long as we hunger after righteousness and truth and that relationship with Him. So we see the two go together, that, that uh, He will satisfy those things that we long for if they're in His will. And then in verses 10 through 16, it says, Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God, and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death. He broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he has broken the gates of bronze, and cut the bars of iron in two. So we see this repetition of they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. That deliverance, that continued cycle of deliverance that God will bring. But then remember the other part of that repetition is, oh, that men would give thanks. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. That's a plea for the psalmist to us to remember his goodness and to be thankful. So here in these verses, the psalmist is making reference to the times of slavery and imprisonment of the people of God, you know, and that the Lord had redeemed them from those things. But see what it says there, that the bondage was of their own making. It says in verse 11, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. How many times our bondage is of our own making? How many times those chains that we have on us are of our own making or because we rebel against God? We don't listen to His counsel. But God will still deliver us out of them. And we cry out to Him. More reasons to praise Him and thank Him because He's broken those chains that once held them down and He can break the chains that hold us down. We just cry out to Him in repentance 
and ask for Him to do that. When we have victory, let's say, in a particular sin in our lives, we should be thankful to God that He's delivered us from that, that those chains of sin have been broken. You know, think about the bondage of sin that's so strong in our lives that when we, we are finally delivered from that, how it feels like we're free, we're released from those chains. And God desires to do that for each and every one of us. Then in verses 17 through 22, we see here how the psalmist is referring here to redemption from sickness. It says here in verse 17, Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. And he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice to the, the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. So we see here the psalmist connecting sin with physical affliction. And sometimes those two things go hand in hand. Sometimes our physical infirmities are a direct result, a direct consequence of sin in our lives. Uh, Steve, if, if I didn't mention it to you, but if you click on scripture references there, I have Numbers 21. If it doesn't go up on the screen, there it is. Yeah, he's on, he's on the money. Numbers 21. Think about this scene. This might be what the psalmist is referring to here of healing, but afflictions and physical infirmities that came about because of their dis disobedience to the Lord. It says in verse 4, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. How ungrateful. <laughs> I just, that's my own commentary. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and made, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So we see here the people of Israel you know, re, re, uh, just rejecting uh, the leader that God sent to lead them uh, through the wilderness, uh, uh, and going against Moses, going against God, speaking out against them. And, you know, they were discouraged, but, but uh, you know, God was still providing for them, you know, and their sin directly resulted in physical death. And so uh, we see here that, that God 
sometimes allows that, but he also gives a way of escape. You know, he also gave a way for them to be healed. Think about the typology here, because uh, in, the book, in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, it's mentioned that this particular event uh, is a picture of Jesus Christ and the salvation and the healing and the deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ. You see, we've all been bitten by sin, haven't we? We have all sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of God's glory. So we're kind of, we're sick in our sin. And Jesus Christ was set upon a cross. And all we need to do is look and admit that we're sinners and, and receive that salvation that he has for us and will be healed. And so this is a great picture looking forward to what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. When we cry out to the Lord, he hears our cry. And he knows. And so the healing here of physical infirmities, yes, but also of, that, of the sickness of sin in our life that God has ultimately delivered us from. And then going back to the psalm in verses 23 to 32, uh, the psalmist says here, those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts, lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and, at our, at, and are at wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses. See, the pattern continues, the cycle. He calms the storm so that the waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. Here the psalmist is talking about those who sail the, the seas, understanding the power that's in the ocean and in the waves and understanding that it's the work of the Lord. It's the hand of the Lord upon, upon them that will get them through. You know, they, they need to give honor to the Lord because of his awesome power in controlling the seas. So they recognize his hand in that. And they cry out to him. And he hears in them, them and delivers them. Again, delivers them out of their distresses. And think about it as it relates to us. Sometimes our life feels like the waves are, are coming in upon us. Sometimes there's difficulties that we're going through that just feels like we're being overwhelmed. But God can calm the storm as he calms the storm in the seas. And so we praise him and we give him thanks for that. He's delivered us. How many times has he delivered us out of distresses? How many times has he, has, have we just seen his hand upon those things in our life that are difficult? So again, the psalmist in verse 31, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord. 
Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works. So those storms in our life, but God calms them. He delivers us out of those things. And then this last portion, a description of the Lord's ability to sort of change the the circumstances of someone's life. And at His will, you know, we have to remember that He's sovereign and and that sometimes He'll allow difficulties in our life. But He can change the circumstances that we're in. So as we read uh, verses 33 to 43, it says here, He turns rivers into a wilderness and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. I'm going to stop there for a second and just understand here what God's doing. He's He's allowing good things to turn to bad. He's allowing... If you think about rivers into wilderness, water springs into dry ground, that sounds like he's, he's allowing bad things to happen that were good. But it says here, for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. Again, consequence of sin. Consequences of sin. And that's sometimes what, what God does. He allows those circumstances. To go on, he says, he turns a wilderness into pools of water a dry land into water springs. So he can also do the other, do the opposite. He can turn the desolate times in our life into fruitfulness and abundance. And sow fields and plant vineyards that they may yield a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them and they multiply greatly. He does not let their cattle decrease. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow, He pours contempt on princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. Yet he sets the poor on high, far from affliction, and makes their families like a flock. The righteous see it and rejoice, and all iniquity stops its mouth. Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. So his sovereignty in all of the events of our life. In verses 33 and 34, he turned, turns abundance into emptiness. So he, think, I think about it this way as it relates to us. Sometimes he allows loss in our life because it may be the only way that he can get our attention. You know, sometimes we're just stubborn, aren't we? And we really need to be given a rude awakening in order for us to come to the Lord. And so... I look at him turning abundance into emptiness, rivers into wilderness, as his way of saying, I want you to, to pay me the, the honor and the glory that I'm due. I want you to come to me. And so, you know, I was once stubborn too, and still can be, you know, with the Lord. Sometimes he needs to get our attention. And then God is depicted as the one who can turn barrenness into plenty. And certainly he deserves glory and honor for, for all of the goodness in our life. And praise for his loving kindness. And so I, I love that. We kind of see a full picture there of God and his relationship with us. You know? And we, we love to think of God you know, as, as only giving us good things. And, and yet sometimes he allows those difficult things 
for a purpose. He's always, he always has a purpose. Uh, psalm 108, it's a short psalm. It's kind of a, it's a retelling. Again, uh, if you think of the book of De- Deuteronomy, which is sort of a retelling, this is a retelling of two previous psalms. Psalm 57, part of Psalm 57 and part of Psalm 60 are kind of repeated in this Psalm 108. David here is in great distress and he's lamenting his situation, but then he comes to realize that God has not forsaken him and that he deserves the glory uh, that accompanies the deliverance that David has uh, received. Excuse me. (coughs) So in verses um, 1 through 5, a song, a psalm of David, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp, I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth. Joking. David's troubles here, I love this, this because if you go back to Psalm 57, you'll see the, the recording of the troubles and the trial and the distress. But here we just see the praise. So he, he doesn't have to reiterate the trial. He just wants to show us the praise and, and the glory here. So we just have the praise here for God's faithfulness in this psalm takes on a different pattern than most. We don't see the up and down part of it. It's just encouraging that that David here records only the victory, only the redemption uh, in this psalm. So uh, for us, causing us to see the Lord's hand in the midst of trouble and and to focus on the triumph, to focus on the victory instead of the trial in our lives. And I, I think that's why, even though it was, it's kind of a repeat of another psalm, we only see the praise part of it here. And that's what we should focus on. And then in verses 6 through 13, that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will re- divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawmaker. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Over Philistia I will triumph. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble. For the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. So perspective here. The psalmist gives us perspective. And to focus here on God's sovereignty over all the nations. He mentions, he mentions Shechem and Sukkoth and Gilead and Manasseh, Ephraim and Moab is his washpot. He mentions all these nations to give us a a sense of God's sovereignty over the entire world. 
and re- recalling how God intervened, thank you, recalling how God intervened in the battles that the nation had, with the, the nation of Israel had with all of the nations around them. You know, how many times were they invaded? And, you know, we think about right up to today, you know, the rockets being launched into Israel and, and uh, from their neighbors. And, um, you know, God will intervene. God will intervene. So, attributing God to the success of the armies and acknowledging that when God wasn't with them, the result was defeat. Just like in our lives, you know, that you know, when we try to face those things in our life alone, apart from God, and say, God, I, I have this, you know, uh, it'll, it'll result in defeat. It'll never amount to anything. Facing our, imagine facing our adversary apart from God. Facing the one who want, is the enemy of our soul apart from our Lord and Savior would not be a very wise thing to do. So we won't enjoy the victory in that case. Psalm 109. I want to get through Psalm 109 because it's one of the best-known imprecatory psalms. And for those Bible students, you know the, uh, what an imprecatory psalm is. Imprecatory psalms are a plea for God to bring vengeance on the psalmist's enemies. And it kind of gives us joy to just think about that. But <clears throat> And they may, they may seem to represent vindictiveness of the writer. But in context, it's always directed towards an evildoer against the Lord, of someone who goes against God and his purposes. So it's not really directed toward you know, someone coming against the psalmist, but more going against the Lord. In all of these psalms, the writer acknowledges God's sovereignty in administering justice. See, it's God who can bring judgment better than any of us. So in a sense, when we read through these types of psalms, we think, God, I'm going to allow you to bring justice to this situation. It's, it's better than me retaliating on my own because God's justice is always perfect, whereas we may bring, we may bring too strong a judgment for a particular situation or maybe not even strong enough. So God knows. God knows the perfection of his justice and his purpose. His purpose for bringing judgment is so that people are vindicated and he is glorified. Not just for the purpose of retribution. So we see these psalms, they use very strong language. Um, It's poetic, so it may be exaggerated. And as Christians, we're kind of, we have a balance that we have to have in our life. You know, Jesus calls us to love our neighbor, you know, but there's also... Uh, we can't be indifferent towards evil. You know, Jesus also uh, turned the tables over, you know, in the marketplace, in in the temple, because, you know, there was was wickedness. So he didn't turn turn, uh, away from that. So seeking the Lord, I think this is also for us a lesson that seeking the Lord in these things will help us sort of balance those two aspects of our lives. 
So the first five verses, here we see the psalmist's complaint to the Lord. It says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, Do not keep silent, O God, of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. So the motivation here for the psalmist's imprecatory prayer is that his enemies have spoken lies against him. And they fought against him for no reason. You know, sometimes that happens to us. You know, people just, for some reason, they, they don't like us. And they'll speak lies against us. And they'll try to cause, uh, you know, controversy in our lives. And, and so I, I think here we see the psalmist sort of saying to God, God, take care of them. You, knew, you know how to, how to bring uh, justice that's, that's fair. And I think here, we see something here that, you know, to make matters worse, David loved them and they made false accusations against him. You know, and for us, it's always worse when a so-called friend, you know, becomes your enemy, speaks ill against you. So it kind of makes it it's, it's more difficult to, to really take. But, but think about it. We shouldn't be surprised, Right? Jesus said in, uh, in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So as believers in Jesus Christ, you know, we, we understand that perspective. So verse, uh, verse uh, 6 through 20 is the curse or the uh, imprecatory portion of the psalm. And it might seem offensive because it's strong language, but we need to understand that the emotions of the psalmist are sort of taking over here, and uh, and so and plus the the poetic language of the psalms may exaggerate that. So, psalmist here is praying for God to bring forth the judgment um, and not taking the vengeance himself. So, in verse six and seven, set a wicked man over him. The psalmist writes, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. So the Hebrew word for accuser here is Satan, or we might pronounce it Satan. It's the same word. The Hebrew word for accuser is Satan. So we understand that, uh, the, that uh, the devil is the accuser of the brethren, it says. And he'll accuse us. He'll use people sometimes to accuse us. And the power behind those people who come against God's people is, is satanic. So remember where the power comes from. Then in verses 8 through 15, Let his days be few, the psalmist writes, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let their creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. 
Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any favor to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them continually let them be continually before the Lord that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. So here's uh, psalmist strong language, you know, praying for a strong penalty to be executed over his enemies. He prays for a few things here, for a shortened life for his enemies. It says there in, in verse 8, let another take his office. So basically cut him off and let someone else replace him. And if we recall in Acts 1, Luke actually cites this verse when he makes reference to Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. Let another take his office. So we see here that, um, you know, we're talking about wickedness. You know, somebody coming against God and his people. The judgment on this person will result in a family left without a father or a husband. You know, in those days, that's a punishment for the whole entire household. So this is, this is difficult. He also prays that in their desperation, no one would show them mercy. No one would show them favor. You know, so again, he didn't mete out that punishment himself, but he prayed for God to do as he saw fit. But it was done because of the wickedness of the person. So, you know, think about the evil that we see in the world. Think about some of the, uh, some of the wicked things that we see go on in the world, you know, and sometimes isn't our prayer, God, you know, take vengeance. You know, God, execute judgment here, you know, in, in your way, because we know that you'll be fair when you do that. So similar to those kinds of prayers that we would have, the psalmist is praying. And in direct proportion to the wickedness of the person, because here in verses 16 through 20, because he did not remember to show mercy, so the psalmist prays for no mercy for him, but persecuted the poor and needy, that he may even slay the broken in heart, as he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, let it be far from him. You see, the, the, per, the perspective and the proportionality here the psalmist is praying for, for fairness in, just, in judgment. As he clothed himself with cursing, as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water, and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like the garment which covers him, and for a belt with which he girds himself continually. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and those who speak evil against my person. So he's praying here, no mercy, because he showed no mercy. Curses to come upon him because he loved cursing other people. No blessings because he didn't bless others. So, again, the proportionality. Only God could administer justice perfectly fair. Only God could do it. You know, even in the law, the Mosaic law, that, that, that prescribes how to hand out justice. We've, we've perverted it. You know, in Exodus 21, 
It says, For if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, we've all heard this, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So here God was laying down proportionality, right, in justice, not to exceed the, the crime that was taking place. So the original intent of that law was to place limits on retribution. But then, of course, man gets a hold of things and they kind of misinterpret and misapply it and, and misuse it and, and to justify personal retaliation you know, against others. But again, these imprecatory prayers are for God. You know, to, to, bring, to bring that justice. Then in verses 21 through 25, But you, O God, the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake, because your mercy, mercy is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. So we see here the psalmist sort of turning as he's prayed for the Lord to take you know, retribution and judgment on his enemies. He's praying now for the Lord to show him grace and mercy. You know, because there's no hope in any other for the psalmist. You know, he's... He prays for, for fairness. He pray, prays for God to deal with him because man has been wicked. And God will be uh, grace, gracious. He prays for mercy. He prays for deliverance. He prays for strength. And he prays for vindication. So uh, he prays for God's favor, you know, that God would get the glory uh, and that his enemies would know it. You know, it says... It says here, for your name's sake, for your name's sake, he prays. And then to recognize that God's favor, you know, the, everything good, it says in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above. So as we pray for God's goodness, we know that it, it comes from the Lord. You know, and he's the giver of all that is good. And then to finish up um, in verses 26 through 31, Help me, O Lord my God, O save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand. You see his motivation is so that even his enemies would know the Lord. Even his enemies. That you, Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice. Let, the, let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. So we see here, as the psalmist closes up, the contrast between those who are blessed by God and those who have incurred his wrath. You know, so let them curse, but you bless. Let they, when they arise, let them be ashamed, he writes, but let your servant rejoice. We have a special, special relationship with the Lord. 
because we've trusted Him. Understand the blessings that we have. Understand that He doesn't have this relationship with everyone. It's only those who look to Him, who trust Him, who've received Him, who are part of that family. You know, the enemies of God are cursed. Us He blesses. The enemies of God are humbled. We are exalted. You know, so just... And I love the way that the psalmist, he began with praise, he ends with praise. We should praise the Lord because of that special relationship. It's, it's so awesome. And uh, we should always be thankful for, uh, for him, for that relationship that we have with the Lord. Let's pray.